If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the opening chapter of Mark's Gospel. And if you have a church Bible, it's page 707. Just a minute, we're going to read, beginning in verse 21 to verse 35. So we've been working through Mark's Gospel, verse by verse, and so we are in a 24-hour period in the life of Jesus, and I don't think we're going to finish it out today, but I'll spare Lord willing, next Sunday we'll finish it out, but... Verse 21, they, this is Jesus and his ministry team, they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. People were all so amazed and they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority? He he even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her, so he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Amen. And we'll leave it there. If you would, let's bow together. Thank you, God, for your word. We pray for the ministry of the Holy Spirit that would grant us understanding of it. We thank you for the privileges of grace, one of which, God, is to come to this place now uh, in the ministry of your word. And so what we ask is that all of us would be servants of your word, that we would not go below it, that we would not go beyond it, but, God, that we would stay in line with it in order that through your mercy we would be able to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ And we would put no confidence in our flesh. And so what we ask now is what the psalmist wrote, Father. God, please be gracious to us and bless us. Cause your face to shine upon us in order that your ways may be known on the earth. Your salvation among all people. Now, God, you're the only one that can do these things. And so we would ask you to do them for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, when Jesus gave the call to follow him, he meant it literally. You see, you may not know this, but it was the pattern of that day for Jesus as he would walk down the streets, we'll say in Capernaum, 
he would be teaching those who would follow him. Subsequently, the disciples would be walking literally right behind our Lord Jesus Christ, and they would listen to him, and they would be committing to memory his gospel-filled instruction, which was nothing near what they were getting um, in the synagogue. Now, if you think about that for a moment or two, beyond the fact that, one, it is a great honor to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, and two, it is a great honor to commit his memory, or excuse me, his words to memory, his intent then, just like it is now, was that his followers, as they followed him and put to mind what he was saying, as they lived life, as they planned life, as they spoke and as they ministered in Christ's name about the message of eternal life, since Jesus was king, because that's what he was saying, since he was king, the instruction that he would give them would, if you would, be in their core and it would be ready to be acknowledged and called up on as the authoritative voice in every part of their existence. So we all know we have lots of voices coming to us, coming out of us, if you would. But this is the one voice, the voice of Christ, that is the authority. And so as life is lived, as ministry is done, we would say what he would say and we would do what he would do. Because ministry done in Jesus' name must be executed, if you would, as Jesus says. And if you think about that for a moment or two, surely every fact in our Lord Jesus Christ's earthly existence, every word which fell from his lips, one, it ought to be deeply interesting to those who follow him, and two, it ought to be held on tightly, and three, it ought to be applied to everything by those who confess that we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So we learned this last time, since Jesus was a rabbi, he walks into the synagogue, he was acknowledged as a rabbi, and he was given the opportunity to speak, or if you would, to preach. If your Bible's open, you'll see this. We know what he's going to say, verse 14, from town to town, he's preaching the gospel, the good news, and we know, verse 22, his listeners didn't receive it as good news. It was at Christmas time, I gave you this quote from Thomas Paine, a long habit, of not thinking a wrong thing wrong gives it a superficial appearance of being right. Let me extend the quote and raises at first a formidable outcry in defense of custom. And in essence, that's what took place here. So Jesus read from the Old Testament and he said something like probably what he said in Luke's Gospel chapter 4. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, this passage is about me. I'm going to talk Jesus says, I'm going to talk about me now. I'm going to bring you good news. And in essence, I'm the good news. Which we noted would have been a bombshell because they understood in part what he was saying. He was saying, listen, all the instruction you'd been receiving about the law and the prophets and the Messiah, which you thought was right, it was all wrong. And I'm right. I'm the Messiah. Still, they had listened to the wrong interpretation of God's word, right? So they were still opening up their Bible but it was being explained to them completely wrong. So all that for so long, thinking a wrong thing right, to them, apparently held the superficial appearance of it being right, and it was hard for them to let go. 
And so what we discovered is that we find no hint here that anyone apart from the demons actually recognized Jesus for who he was, right? And the demons are the ones who, uh, if you would, they, they uh, raise a formidable outcry and defensive custom, right? So the good news came to the people, the call to repent and believe, and here it is, even though it was Jesus preaching the sermon, right? You with me? It's Jesus preaching the sermon. So if it's Jesus preaching the sermon, then everybody just should bow and believe. It's Jesus. But you'll notice that Mark gives us no sign of any converts. Nobody's believing. They were amazed. They were disturbed. They were staggered, taken back, but no hint at all of conversion. And of course, halfway through the sermon, Jesus' sermon, all hell breaks loose. Because a man who was possessed who we said last time he may or may not have been part of the normal synagogue worship, whatever it is, he cannot stand to hear the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his son Jesus so people wouldn't have to be eternally condemned and be under God's wrath for their sin and that all they needed to do was to cry out to Jesus and repent and believe and he would save them. Zit. So... Obviously, the demonic world cannot stand to hear the gospel preached. And thus, they try to deflect what is taking place. That's verse 21. Again, if your Bible is open, uh, he cries out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So we had three points last time. We only made it through one. That was the confrontation. We're going to finish that point out and, and Lord willing, we're going to move on to the final two on your sheet there in the back of the worship folder. Now, when you hear about demons, I suspect most of you here have no problem believing that there's actually a kingdom of evil and that there's actually a devil and that there really are his minions, uh, demons. So when we read uh, this man was possessed, it causes most of us here, I imagine, no uncertainties. However, when you talk to people, because you're trying to fish for them, if you would, when you talk to people, most people, and this is a modern age and a scientific mind, most people kind of say, well, have a little trouble there. Uh, the data is something like 96% of people say, yes, I believe in a God of some type, but less than 30%, I think it's like 27%, actually believe in an actual devil. You know, because that's like the talk of goblins, the things that make your house creak. And, and we know it's not ghosts and demons. It's because, you know, you need to tighten up the wood or whatever it is. So to say that there's a double-horned man who carries a trident, who, you know, who's spray-painted spray red, that's what they say. Well, that's just kind of silly. Well, it is silly because that's not who he actually is. Now, this is my promise to you. I promise as we move along in Mark, we're going we're gonna to address that issue uh, head on. We might even address it a little bit later on in a moment or two. And we're going to give a rational argument to why the Bible doesn't try to explain that the kingdom of evil exists. It just declares that the kingdom of evil exists. However, for now, let me say this. What we need to notice here is that what caused this violent confrontation of the kingdom of evil was the preaching of the gospel. We understand that. In other words, what make this, made this outbreak come out is when Jesus was preached and the cross and the sinfulness of sin and the need for God's grace, the eternal consequence for those who reject him and the defeat of all evil, that is what set the demons off. Right? It wasn't, we're just going to talk about our families today. 
I'm going to give you some strategies for family stuff. It wasn't that. You know what? Your finances are not so hot today. I'm going to give you five strategies for you to get the finances up and the debt down. And you're just going to love it. No. What set hell off, if you would, is the gospel. The kingdom of hell cannot stand when the gospel is preached and when the gospel advances. And you'll see there that because this man's personality is removed to the degree that the demon is speaking through him, when Jesus gives the reply, verse 25, it's actually to the demon. So the demonic activity so subverted this man's personality that it usurped the place of this guy's selfhood. And so he was so broken by the demonic world, he gave up all sense of control, control, all sense of restraint, of limits, and of judgment. Okay, that's the confrontation. Okay, then the second point you'll see is validation. And what's happening here is a validation of the authority of Jesus Christ. And it's so clear that all Jesus needs to do, verse 25, is what? He just needs to speak. Be quiet, come out of him. Which could be translated, shut up. I do not want to hear any more from you at all. Be gone. And you'll notice if your Bible's open, that's exactly what happened. That's the validation of the the kingly rule of Jesus. Time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom is near. In fact, he said in Matthew's gospel, chapter 12, verse 28, he said, if I cast out demons, apparently Jesus believes in demons. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come. And the indication that the kingdom has come is that things are changing. So demons are confronted because Jesus is king. They They are easily defeated. Now, this is what you need to know. There were exorcisms occurring at this time. So Jesus wasn't the only one going around uh, casting out demons. But those who did this, it was some kind of like long, drawn-out event. They had ambulance. They had special words. They had special chants. They would wave charms and so on. It was a long process. But it was not a borderline impolite language. And then in less than two seconds, the whole thing is over with. Right? See, that kind of thing never happened up till then. It wasn't supposed to be theater. Right? The TV people might make an hour-long show of, you know, demon possession. When I was a kid, I used to listen to the radio, and there was this guy, I, don't, I can't remember his name, but he would, had a 30-minute radio show, and every 30 minutes he was casting out demons in his crusades. And it's like, all right. <laughs> Three seconds, two seconds, it's over with. And the fact, by the way, that the demon said what he said, verse 24, I know who you are, you are the Holy One of God, it tells me that he had a pretty good handle on theology. I mean, how many times do you read in the Gospels where the crowds and the disciples, they don't know really who Jesus is? So what we need to see is that the demonic world is very orthodox. They believe in an orthodox way. In the same way James said, when people say, oh yes, I believe in God, but their belief hasn't made any real difference in their life. I I believe, but I don't really have any fruit for Jesus at all. I'm, I'm orthodox but I really show no signs of life. And James says, well, you believe in God, terrific. Even the the demons believe that and shudder. So they believe, but they don't trust God. 
They believe, but they don't rejoice in their belief. They believe, but they don't repent. They believe, but they don't tie themselves to gospel privileges and rejoice in that privilege and tie themselves to gospel responsibilities because Jesus is king. They believe, but they would never publicly harden, confess Jesus, nor publicly give off any gospel proclamation. Intellectually, they're there, but not volitionally which tells us that, that, you know, it's an intellectual assent to the gospel is not enough. What it is, is something that falls way short. The transforming nature of belief, that's when we know something's happening. And the transforming nature of belief, the demons had not enjoyed. That's the second point validation of Jesus' kingly power. So there's this confrontation with the demonic world in a church service of all places, and Jesus validates his power at once. The demons bow to his command. So let's hold there just for a second, and as we think about this, let's not kid ourselves. So we have friends who are naturalists, or are materialists, or they're the kind of people who demand empirical evidence if they would ever believe that there's actually devil, a devil and demons and so on. And so they think that this whole idea of devil and demons is real kind of like backwoods, you know, kind of real low brain stuff and people who are very superstitious, but not us who um, have good jobs and 401ks and nice cars and big houses. (laughs) Those people who say, okay, look, I need to see it. And until I see it, I won't believe it. And therefore, I don't think it's true. Now think about that just for a second. In my mind, it's a pretty tremendously arrogant statement to say that if I don't see it, then I don't believe it, and I won't say it's true. That's an arrogant statement. Because what you're saying is the entire notion of truth depends on your Ability of perception. (laughs) And so you're trusting in your ability to always come to a correct correct conclusion by your perception. Don't you want to say, really? You're that good? You're that good? Because to me, that sounds like a two-year-old who's playing fantasy world and they've been told they're wrong and... They need to stop. Then a sound-minded person thinking rationally and coming to grips with the fact that surely their perception is not 100% accurate. But anyway, those who are tied uh, to this kind of there is no invisible kingdom of evil, the same people, those same people, they cannot provide for me a rational explanation for something like Columbine. You tell me why a dad murdered a son in a shootout over who would walk the dog. It was in the paper a couple of months ago. Not our paper, online paper. Tell me about the mother who killed her daughter and son, and she put one of the dead kids in the deep freezer. Tell me about the doctor yesterday. This is the doctor, right? He goes back into the hospital he used to serve, and he has a shootout there. Tell me. Tell me why that happens. And please don't tell me, okay, it was an education issue. 
or you know what, because they didn't go participate in after-school athletics or activities, and don't tell me it's an income issue, and don't tell me it's, it's, you know, it's the location where they were raised. Don't tell me that. Do you think I'm an idiot? <laughs> but here's my explanation for Columbine, for the dad and son shootout, for the, for the mother who shoves one of her kids in the freezer dead. It's right here in this confrontation with Jesus and the demon. This is the demonic activity of a life which sells itself out to the evil one. And no defense is put up. And so what they do is they lay themselves open to the undermining and the disruption of the kingdom of evil in their personality so that before they know what has happened, they they are actually possessed. They are in the grip of what controls them. They have no control. And until Jesus comes to set them free, they remain bound to that reality. What does Paul write to the Ephesian church? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Okay, Paul, what do we wrestle against? Well, we wrestle against spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places. And that does not mean that the devil is always hiding under our bed so that everything that happens bad or strange in terms that uh, we turn into terms of demonic activity or demonic warfare all the way. That is silly. That is silly. Let me give you an example. You remember I told you, uh, my son, since he went off to college, every time he's come home for Christmas break, we have a major appliance breakdown in our house to the point where we have to replace it. We can't fix it. So two years ago, it was the dryer. Last year, it was the washer breaks down. <laughs> We're like, son, <laughs> we, we think we want you to stay home over Christmas break, right? Don't, don't come home <laughs> because we can't afford this. The microwave door is broken. I might have broke it. I'm not confessing, but I tell you one thing. If Jared makes it home, I know who I'm blaming. (laughs) Listen to this one. This is true. Each time my daughter was about to make a trip to the college of her choice, her car is broken down either a day or two before or the day of. In fact, it happened last weekend. We were were leaving Sunday, Sunday, this last Sunday, and sure enough, the car broke down. And then when we get the vehicle to go, it rains a whole lot of the trip like cats and dogs. And like when it's raining and I'm driving, I'm driving like, you know, 40 miles an hour. So you can imagine the tension in the car. (laughs) So so we're on our way Sunday to Lindsay's freshman orientation. We're in Jared's little tiny, you know, death trap. (laughs) And... My wife is in the back seat. She's like a pretzel, you know, all there. And Lindsay's face is up to the front window because she's got to move up the seat so that mom will have some leg room. And as soon as we arrive into the city limits of the college of her choice, for some reason, I hit the, the scan button on the radio. And I'll be darned. <laughs> the, the, the first song... Now, remind you, I'm thinking about all this craziness. Every time we go there, the car breaks down. Every time we go there, it rains. Are you trying to say something to us? Are you trying to say something to us? <laughs> so, hit the scanner on the radio. The first song out of the chute is ACDC, Highway to Hell. <laughs> Here's the bad part. I hit the button to try to make it go past the song. My wife's like, no, no, go back. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> So here's the thing. We weren't spooked by this. We're not trying to turn every event into some kind of like tea reading, devil, God, what are you saying? Right? 
We don't make final judgments on the trending of circumstances, whether they're good or bad. We do not make final judgments on the feelings, whether they're good or bad. But we do make judgments in light of who God is and what God has said in His Word because we are God's children. We are God's children. So the fact that there is an evil kingdom does not mean that we have to see everything bad, strange, weird in terms of demonic activity all the way. But it does mean this, that we understand Everything which represents death and lies and despair and fear and hatred and disruption of gospel work, all that represents devaluing the work of Jesus Christ and the worth of Jesus Christ and the authority of Jesus Christ, behind all of that, at every turn, lies the activity of the evil one himself, who is a liar and the father of all who tells lies. He's a murderer from the beginning. That's the biblical answer to the question, okay, why is there a Columbine? Why does a dad and son have to shoot out about who's taking a dog? Why does a mom shove her dead kid in the freezer? What is that? And you see, it is into that world that Jesus comes as king to destroy the works of the devil who opposes the activity of God himself, who opposes gospel preaching, proclamation, expansion, and and one day this whole mess of a world will be gone forever. And God's purposes from all eternity will be that the work of the Lord Jesus on the cross will have its final victory and the old earth will be destroyed and the kingdom of evil will be locked up and punished forever. And everyone who's ever rejected Jesus Christ will be condemned if you would and locked up forever and the new heaven and the earth comes of which dwells righteousness and the validation of all that if you would the validation is when Jesus speaks to the kingdom of evil the kingdom of evil bows and when Jesus speaks his final words if you would to the kingdom of evil it'll be over with it'll be done Last point, rationalization. Okay, this is the rationalization then. Why must Jesus Christ be preached? Uh, Why must he uh, be heeded to in his authority? Uh, Why do we need to know about Jesus? Because you see, remember we said that one of Mark's tasks as he sits down with Peter to write this gospel out is he's putting together scene by seeing a collection of events of the ministry of Jesus Christ, which reveals his, his compassion, his message, his authority, and so on. In other words, think about this. You're, you're a reader of the, this gospel, and the first recipients was the church in Rome, and the church in Rome is taking a total beat down because of their loyalty to Jesus Christ. And so probably some of the questions you'll ask yourself is, okay, if, is this Jesus, is he that wonderful? Is he really the only way to God? And if he is, then he better be something, right? He better have power. He better have compassion. He better not be some, you know, religious nut job who can't shut up about himself. Or he better not be some humpty grumpty judgmental guy who just condemns people all the time. I mean, is he worth following? Is what he's saying, is it true? I mean, I'm getting beat down for Rome and my life is turned upside down just because I say I'm with Jesus. So, is this all real? See, that's why this gospel is written. Right? That's why I keep telling you, this is not a how-to book. This is a keep-your-eyes-on-Jesus book. 
So first, verse 29, does Jesus have compassion? Oh, yeah, he does. So they leave the synagogue. He just gets through preaching. He goes to the home of Simon and Andrew. And you see there, it's a private setting. He finds out this lady's sick. Bible scholars tell us that the standards that Jesus is using here, it, it was not like the norms of his day. So what he's doing is unusual. There's lots of symbolic action and gestures here by Jesus. And if you think about it, this is a living example of the gospel. Jesus goes to her because she cannot go to him. She's too sick. Christ gives her her hand. He helps her up. In other words, he does everything. And then it happens. She's healed. She was sick. She was useless. She's just lying there. And Jesus restores her to the way she ought to be. The fever goes. And she does what followers of Christ do. And she serves Jesus. She waits on Jesus. Okay, you with me? Isn't that the gospel? We are sick. We're dead in our sins, in fact. We're too sick to go to Jesus. So Jesus has to come to us, and he changes us. We hear the gospel. We receive the gospel, a thing in which Ephesians 2 says is a work of God's grace in itself, the faith that we need. You see, that's the compassion of Jesus. Now, I want you to notice the power of Jesus. So he gets a carbo load at that lady's house, right? Or Simon and Andrew's house. Verse 32, that evening after sunset. Okay, so stop for a second. Why does Mark put that in there? Why does he say sunset, after sunset? Well, this is, this is what I want you to know. Apparently, the people are so institutionalized because they were taught, all right, listen, there can't be any healing on a Sabbath, right? So Friday sunset to Saturday sunset, that was their Sabbath. And there can't be any good deeds, no healing on the Sabbath. So the poor folks... They have to wait till the sun goes down. I mean, and can you just imagine that? It's just just creepy. It's just creepy. But as soon as the sun goes down, what happens? Verse 32, here they come. And apparently the sick were so sick that other people had to bring them to Jesus. And the demon possessed as well. And I want you to notice then around verse 32b that Jesus gives us a distinction, or Mark actually gives us a distinction between physical illness and demon possession. So Mark doesn't try to fuse the two together, right? Sometimes you read people say, well, back then, this is how, you know. No. Apparently, there is a distinction between a physical illness and a demon possession. And you'll notice also that when all this takes place, it's all pretty straightforward, right? There's no funny business here. They come to Jesus and he heals them. Next. He comes to Jesus, he heals them. Next. So again, this is not a made-for-TV healing. This is not what you find in contemporary healing, you know, in the television programs. The the people make wild claims and it takes forever to verify if they're saying it's true. And the healer comes out like it's a show, right? He comes behind the curtain. Here he comes and he does his thing to people. Then he goes back into the curtain. Is he going to come out? What's God doing? Is God going to let him come out? Is, Is the power gone? Is the spirit gone? All that stupid stuff that people watch week after week after week. No, this is, come here. Demon, come out. Out. Okay, onward. Come here. You're sick? Done. That's it. It's not a show. It's ministry. It's compassionate ministry. And I want you to notice there's no pay as you come to support the healing ministry of Jesus. Is he making anybody uh, give him some money? No. How about this one? There isn't any cost benefit analysis equation that's running through the mind of Jesus. So Jesus is like, listen, I am healing lots of people. 
and I'm casting out lots of demons, and nobody's believing. I'm using a lot of my resources. Nobody's believing. I'm going to shut it down and go somewhere else. No, this is Jesus Christ. He is filled with compassion, and he's filled with power. And he goes in, and he confronts the disease, and he confronts the demons. His power and compassion reaches out for the lady, right? Lifts her up, fixes her up. She waits on them. The word goes out. The sun goes down. The people bring the sick and possessed. And Jesus takes over the night. He takes over the night. You know, you want to say, Jesus, what a wonder you are. Now, you might be sitting there and like, okay, you know, I've been grew up in church and I've heard these stories like a million times. Let's just, let me just ask you to think about this. What if you're a parent with a terminal child and you're going to bring this child to this 30-something-year-old man and the kid's cured? What do you think about Jesus? You can't see. You can't hear. Your nerves are so amped up that you can't think. You are so low that you want to end it all and Jesus in one moment takes it all away. You see, verse 33, the whole town was there. Verse 34, he healed many. And as you think about that, apparently Capernaum was filled with a whole lot of sick people. And apparently it was filled with a whole lot of demon-possessed people. Which takes me back to the kind of foolishness they were learning in the synagogue, right? Bad doctrine making it so easy for the kingdom of evil to make inroads into the lives of many people in that town. We need to think that out. The town was filled with demon-possessed people. Why is that so? Why is that so? Son of God, working in the late hours of night, he's healing. He doesn't let the demons speak. Why doesn't he let them speak? Because they're not saying what they need to say with glory and reverence and humility. It's mockery. It's uh, begrudging. It's resentful. So he shuts them up. And so you see, my mind goes right back to the church in Rome and they're reading this letter for the first time and Mark's like, now you look at him. You look at the Lord Jesus Christ. He does everything well. He has incredible compassion. He has power. He has authority. He's the Holy One of God and the people's unbelief and the demonic press on his ministry does not stop this Jesus from reaching out into the circumstances, into those people's lives and he rescues them even though they do not believe in him. That's Jesus. Just keeps pouring and pouring out compassion and power. Is there anyone who can help me? Yes, Jesus can. Finally, we need to stop. Verse 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, he left the house, and he went off into a solitary place where he prayed. So, so, you know, what does this Jesus do? Okay, after a 24-hour period of just, you know, pouring himself out, first in the preaching of God's word, and then the healing, and, and all through that, the demon possession, and all that stuff. Okay, so what does Jesus do? Well, after that, he gets up very early, verse 35, very early in the morning, and he talks with his father. Right? It's kind of remarkable if you think about it. Because, you know, some might have a picture of of Jesus kind of play acting here so that he prays early so that we'll start thinking, okay, now we need to pray early. And sermons will be preached telling us, listen, you haven't really prayed until you prayed early in the morning while it's still dark. 
In fact, here's five steps to help you pray in the dark. Right? Five steps to pray in the morning before the sun comes up. This is, why, this is what I want to say to that this morning. I, I want to say, do we have to make everything about us? Do we have to? You want me to tell you that every morning I get up before dark and pray? You want me to tell you that? Okay. Most mornings I do. But so what? So what? What is remarkable here is that the Son of God, who just kicked tail in Capernaum, shows us that he is a dependent Son of God. And we're told that he prays and prays early. Son of God prays early. Dependence. Dependence. So what does he pray about? Well, this is what I would pray about, Father. I want you to please bless the seed I planted and watered yesterday in the lives of those people. Father, I preach the gospel, so please, I want, I want you to make it grow. Nothing's happening yet, Father. Nothing's happening yet. And by the way, I want to ask you where to go next because I think the people want me to stay. Verse 36, but, but you didn't tell me to stay here. So, Father, I, I want your mind on this. Sometimes you go to a text and you go to it and you're like, okay, what do I need to do? How, how does this apply to me? I'm not doing that. I need to do it quick. Mark's not doing that here. He wants us to admire the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants us to just ponder the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he wants us to be lost in his greatness and in his goodness and in his love. Hmm. You ever fell in love before? It's pretty terrific, isn't it, when you actually do? Some of that should be some of this. This is what Mark is saying. This is what Mark is saying. There's a, there's a, a hymn. It's not actually a hymn. It's a spiritual song, and it goes, you know it. In the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. Right? Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. That's exactly what Mark is doing. He's giving us Jesus. He's giving us Jesus. We better pray. Now, in just a second or two, we're going to take communion. So those that will help, be helping sermon, if you guys don't mind coming forward, we'll just meet at the table. What do you say? That seems good. It was such a confusing week that I have three different prayers to choose from to pray. <laughs> so what we'll do is, I think what we'll do is we'll make a hymn, our prayer, and actually our scripture reading as well. No list of sins we have not done. No list of virtues we pursue. No list of those we are not like can earn ourselves a place with you. Oh God, be merciful to us. We are sinners through and through. Our only hope of righteousness is not in us, but only you. No humble dress, no fervent prayer, no lifted hands, no tearful song, no recitation of the truth can justify a single wrong. 
But Jesus died and rose again. The power of death is overthrown. Our God is merciful to us and merciful in Christ alone. Our righteousness is Jesus' life. Our debt was paid by Jesus' death. Our weary load was borne by him. And he alone can give us rest. Father, thank you for your compassion on our lives through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. It's pictured here in bread and juice and body and blood, life given, life taken, life, life resurrected, and eternal life granted. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.